you guys can go ahead and open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 18. That's where we'll be at today. Uh, if you need one, you can go ahead and grab one out in the lobby. Um, I want to make sure that you are following along for yourself, that you're taking God's word for it, not my own. And uh, I'll give you one reason why you'll want to do that. Uh, and that is because I'm going to share with you a meme that we've been using in our student ministry to celebrate living scent, right? Jesus calls us to be salt and light, not salty and lit, okay? Um, just something a little fun to start us off this morning. Uh, but in all sincerity, right, we, we are to be salt and light in this world. And that's what we're calling for our students to be. And that's going to be a little bit of what we talk about today in Matthew chapter 18. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 14 in Matthew 18. And if you can think back a little ways back to when we started off our series through the Gospel of Matthew, uh, Nick introduced for us some of the main characters, talked a little bit about who they were and how they would develop throughout the story, introduced Jesus, the crowds, the religious leaders, the demons, and the disciples. And uh, today we're going to focus in really specifically on the disciples. These guys, uh, Nick warned us, they're going to be slowly transforming over the course of this gospel. They see Jesus more and more, they know him more and more, but yet they take a while before they get it. Think about what we talked about the last few weeks. A few of them got to see Jesus in all of his glory at the transfiguration. And the very next thing is that they try in their own power to cast out demons instead of relying on his. They, they didn't get it. And then Jesus reminds them, it's about sacrificial service. I'm going to die on the cross that stressed them out. Jesus, that can't be the plan, man. That's not how the kingdom is supposed to be coming. You're going to die? You're going to leave us? That's, that's upside down. And then Peter, with the whole tax and the coins and the fish incident, he, he should have understood. He should have taken the hint. It's about humbly depending on the king. Not what I bring to the table. Trusting God, depending on him and his provisions. These guys are glimpsing his glory, but not fully grasping his plan. They're seeing miracles, they're seeing amazing things, but they are not fully getting the type of faith that Jesus is calling them to. They're they're wanting their own power, their own actions, their own authority to mean something. And and Jesus is saying, "That's, that's not it. I'm trying to show you that. So what is their issue? Why are they not understanding this? They see God in the flesh. They see the things that he's doing. What is happening? Well, look at Matthew 18, just just the first verse, verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? The questions we ask are so telling. Did you guys catch what they said? They didn't say, what does greatness look like, Jesus? No, but they asked comparatively, who is the greatest? Their issue is pride. (laughs) Their issue is pride. Their failure to grasp the faith that Jesus would want them to is pride. A definition of pride for us to work with is that pride is the elevation of ourselves above God and others in our desires, our thoughts, and our actions. I'll say that one more time. Pride is the elevation of our own selves above God and others in our desires, our thoughts, and our actions. C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity, he, he talks about it like this. He said that pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. A little later on, he continues, We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, but they are not. They are proud of being richer or cleverer or better-looking than others. If all things and everyone was equal, there would be nothing to be proud about, but it is the comparison that makes you proud, the pleasure of being above the rest. 
I would say that's not just an issue for the disciples, but that's our issue today too. We think about ourselves, our desire, our plan before God and his desire and his plans. Pride is indeed an anti-God state of mind. All of our other sins spring from that, pursuing our own ways instead of God's ways. But praise God for his word, because God in his word has spoken to the issue of pride. And not only that, he's graciously provided us these knuckleheaded disciples to learn from what not to look like. And so today, we're going to see that Jesus talks to his disciples about what the antidote to pride is, and that is humility. Humility of caring about God and caring about others first. We titled this message Childlike Faith um, because that's what Jesus calls his followers to, to be fully dependent upon him, not to elevate themselves, but to submit to him, to humbly follow him, be dependent like a child. And ultimately, that's what all of chapter 18 of Matthew is going to be about. In this whole section, Jesus is saying, this humility is what you need to enter into the kingdom, and this humility is how we should interact with one another, how we should put our humility on display. It's important for us as we talk about this text today that we consider, again, this is not something that we do, but this is all by God's grace. We care for one another. We value one another. We esteem and protect brothers and sisters in Christ because we are one family humbly submitted to the King who has graciously saved us. So today we're going to be looking at three humble acts that shape greatness in the kingdom of heaven. Humble acts that shape greatness in the kingdom of heaven. As Jesus speaks in Matthew 18, there's not a specific rebuke. There's not, oh, how long do I have to put up with these people? He just goes on talking about instructions for living in the kingdom. Let's read here verses 1 through 4 of Matthew chapter 18. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Some important clues here in this first few sections, right? Right at the beginning, at that time, or at that hour, meaning this is Matthew trying to say this is right after what just happened. Jesus demonstrating his provision for the disciples. He's highlighting this question that they're asking means they totally just missed the humility lesson that I taught them. They're they're still not understanding. It's not just a a link back to that, but the proximity of what came before as far as the relationship of God to his children. In verses 26 and 27 of Matthew 17, Jesus talks about the father, the king, and the sons. What he's trying to show here is that disciples, if you are my children, you are my sons. You're, You're submitted to me. And they're missing this connection. They're still trying to be in charge, not submitted to him. And Jesus talks about their prideful response. He tells them two things, right? In verse 3, he says, you need to turn, convert, repent, and you need to become like children. Those who humble themselves are those who enter into the kingdom. Those who become like children are those who enter into the kingdom. In fact, if we don't do that, we will never enter the kingdom. The construction in the Greek is the strongest possible negation that they have. Like, never, ever not going to happen. Jesus is saying, not only is humility a part of greatness in the kingdom, but without it, you don't even enter in. 
To be a citizen of heaven, you need to humbly become a child of the king. Stop trusting yourself. Turn from yourself and turn to God. And so that's our first point of application. Our first humble act is to become like children. Become like children. And what an object lesson Jesus provides for us, right? He takes a child and plops them right in their midst. Now, chapter 17, we see they're back in Capernaum. So maybe they're at Peter's house. Maybe this is Peter's child right here. We don't know for sure. We just know it was someone uh, under the age of puberty. And uh, Jesus putting them in their midst was to demonstrate just how lowly of a view that society had of children. We don't really get this in America today, but children in that day and age were looked on with disdain. They brought nothing to the table. They were totally dependent. They were weak and needy. In fact, it's estimated that about 90% of the family income was all towards feeding children. That's maybe not so different than my mom, if you would ask her about what it was like growing up with us, right? But they were like, ah, these children are a burden. They have no value. And Jesus says, one, children do have value. I'm going to use them as a lesson for you. But, But the actual point is not about the age, about the children themselves. But the point is about dependence. Dependence. These little ones, these little children that are talked about throughout the rest of Matthew 18, is Jesus saying, not those who are literally children, but ones like this little one who have their faith in me. Those who believe in me, those who are dependent upon me. Those who have, by God's grace, through his spirit, believed in me. I also want to say, being childlike is not in all ways. He's not talking about in our actions or in our thoughts. Being wild and ignorant and stupid. No, he is saying we should grow up into our faith. We should be mature. But like children, we should be dependent upon God. This is really tricky for us, especially in our nation, where it is pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You can be anything that you want to be if you just work hard at it. I'm not saying that we shouldn't work hard. I'm not saying that we shouldn't use our gifts and talents. But in the culture that thrives off of competition, humility is a difficult thing for us to swallow. I stumbled across the story of a missionary, Hudson Taylor. He was one of the first men to bring the gospel to China hundreds of years ago. And he was speaking at a conference in Melbourne, Australia, again, before any of us in this room were born. And the moderator was talking just amazing things about him. This dude has shared the gospel where it's never been shared before. It's been amazing. And uh, before he introduces him, he says, I would like you to see our illustrious guest, Mr. Hudson Taylor. Hudson sits there, and he sits there, and he sits there. And finally he gets up, and with his head down, he says, Dear friends, I'm but a little servant of an illustrious master. He didn't take any credit. He, he is a humble child dependent on his father. How about us? How are we at depending upon on God and giving him the credit? Not that we don't use our talents and gifts to serve him. That's not what I'm saying. But it is a dependence upon him. And we could talk at length about what this looks like, but I want to just offer up a couple things. Uh, the first thing is, We need to admit that we are prideful. All of us, to some degree, have pride in our lives. We are all fallen short of God's glory. If anyone says, I'm not dealing with pride and gets defensive about it, they are probably being prideful. C.S. Lewis, a little later in that same section of Mere Christianity, he says, if you think you are not conceited, it means you are very conceited indeed. So just admit it. Confess it. Submit yourself to God and depend upon him humbly. Humbly. I think one practical application of that is prayer. 
prayer is a crucial indicator of our dependence upon God. That's why scripture said we should be praying at all times. Uh, last year, we got a chance to uh, virtually attend a conference uh, as a staff where uh, Pastor David Platt gave a short 25-minute talk about prayerlessness and pride. And he talked about when we pray, we are recognizing that we can do nothing apart from God. We are totally dependent upon him. He said, prayerlessness is pridefulness. How is your prayer life showing your humble dependence upon God? Or is it? Man, we, we need to grow in our attitude of prayer. I need to grow in my attitude of prayer and dependence upon the Lord. I would add one more thing. There's a lot of people in our church body who are suffering, who are going through hard times. Part of becoming like little children is submitting and trusting God in these hard moments. As we sang about and prayed about, he loves us. He cares for us. He is with us. We can trust him and depend upon him. We all need to grow in having a mindset of following the one true king. Because the one true king, he, he actually modeled this for us, this humble attitude of dependence. I want to read for you Philippians 2, verses 3 through 11. It says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests as, and also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. There God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow on heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue should confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus modeled this for us. He humbled himself by taking on flesh. He he took on this humble servant mindset, ultimately to die on the cross for you and for me so that we would be reconciled to God, that he would be glorified in that. And his humbling led to his exaltation. He is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven because he is the perfect example of humility. He is the name above every other name on earth, under the earth, and in heaven. And Philippians 2.5 says, we are to have that same mindset amongst ourselves which is ours in Christ Jesus, that we are humbly dependent upon him. And when we are dependent upon him, we we share in the king's inheritance. We are children of the one who is above every other name. We will rejoice with him in eternity as we share in his glory, as we worship him. And it's not just an us and Jesus thing in eternity but also all his other little children, all his followers. We all share in the inheritance of the king, the one who modeled perfect humility for us. Those of us who are followers of Christ, we need to recognize we are all humbly dependent upon him. What Jesus moves to next then is how do we as fellow little ones interact with one another? What does humility look like in relationship to each other. And that's where he heads next in Matthew 18, verses 5 through 9. Read with me here in Matthew 18, 5 through 9. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, 
it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it's necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. If your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet be thrown into eternal fire. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes be thrown into the hell of fire. The next act of humility is that we need to beware of temptation. We need to beware of temptation. Now, Jesus has some strong words about sin and temptation in this section. I want to highlight first, anytime that you see temptation or cause to sin, that's all from the same root word in the Greek. The idea is a stumbling block, something that trips us up, something that causes us to falter. Temptations and actions that lead to temptation. And Jesus gives some strong language to say, you don't want to stumble or cause others to stumble. Avoid stumbling blocks and avoid being one. First in verse 6, if you are a stumbling block to one of his children, one of his little ones, it would be better to have a millstone necklace and be thrown into the sea. I don't know about you guys, but I don't think a millstone necklace is in these days. Right? That's not something that we want to wear. That's like a, a ton rock that they used to grind up grain back in the day. It was meant to guarantee you would drown. Throw it on you, there's no recovering. You're not going to swim very well with a concrete floaty. Jesus says that death is actually better than the judgment you will face if you lead others to sin. Then he says in verse 7, woe. Twice he uses the word woe, and this has a lot of connections to the Old Testament related to judgment. Woe, this is not good. God has something in store for you that you will not like. Woe. Woe for temptations to sin. Woe if you cause others to sin. And then we see verses 8 and 9. Succumbing to temptation ultimately leads to being thrown into the eternal fires of hell. It would be better to be maimed than to be tempting and succumbing to temptation. Humility ultimately leads us to the kingdom of heaven, leads us to recognizing these stumbling blocks and avoiding them and avoiding being one for others. So what do we do about it? Right? It's going to happen. Verse 7 says, there will be temptations in this world, sir. What are we going to do? Well, he doesn't just warn us and say, don't be a temptation and don't be tempted, but he, he shows childlike faith and action will respond to temptation in some certain ways. And I want to suggest three specific ones that we're going to talk about. The first, from verse 5, is that we need to practice hospitality to cultivate humility. Practice hospitality to cultivate humility. He says, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. That's the opposite of temptation. Welcoming, receiving, hospitality, bringing them in. That is the opposite of temptation. And this is so powerful. When we welcome one of these little ones, one who is a follower of Jesus, we are actually receiving Christ himself. We are welcoming him. He is dwelling in these little ones, these followers. If we think about that, that might change the way we view hospitality. 
don't know about you, but children in my house tend to get in the conflict, tend to have things that maybe they don't agree on. Jesus says it doesn't matter. Welcome them in. Show hospitality. Children come in all shapes and sizes and backgrounds. It doesn't matter. Welcome them in. And it's not just bringing them in, but showing it out there when you see other brothers and sisters outside of the church, outside of your home. Receive them. They're receiving Christ. How are you doing at cultivating hospitality? I think that's a great indicator of the humility or lack thereof in our lives. I want to take a a minute just to mention two ways that you can practically put this into place, aside from just welcoming people into your home, hospitality like we think about it. Uh, But number one, you heard my wife in our announcement video that we have over 100 kids signed up for High Five Camp. It's amazing. We praise God for that. Who's going to receive them? Who's going to welcome them? Who's going to serve them? You have an opportunity to, to cultivate humility by practicing hospitality. Next week is our fifth Sunday. Fifth Sunday means we have one service at nine, and then we go and serve our service partners in the community. We get to go out into the world and practice hospitality. Ministries who are serving in the name of Jesus that we can serve and receive and help them receive. Again, there's many other ways we could talk about practicing hospitality, but those are two I would exhort you to just today. The second thing, as far as helping us beware of temptation, is that we need to selflessly care about each other's holiness. Selflessly care about each other's holiness. Again, verse 7 says, temptations are going to come, but that doesn't mean that we should be the one to bring them. Woe to the one who brings these temptations. The idea is that we do not want to lead others astray. We may hit a stumbling block, but we keep our balance and keep going, and we want others to do the same. If we cause others to stumble, we are acting as agents of this world, those who are purporting desires of the flesh, and there's strong consequences for that. Remember, it would be better that we get thrown into the sea than that we would do that. I uh, was thinking about what, what's a, a way to illustrate what this might look like, and I figured a quote from my favorite movie would be worthwhile. And uh, Frozen 2, if you've not watched it, you probably should. Um, it's my daughter's favorite movie, okay? You guys don't have to make fun of me for that. Um, there's a scene where Elsa, she takes off into the burning forest, right? And her sister Anna runs after her. And after everything's calmed down, Elsa's like, Anna, what are you doing? Why did you come after me? You know this was dangerous. And uh, Anna says, if you don't want me to follow you into fire, then don't run into fire. Duh. (laughs) Well, let's think about that. Are we running into temptation, following sin in a way that is leading others behind us? Do we think that way? Do we care about each other's holiness in that way? Is our pride keeping us from letting go of things that may be causing others to stumble? Are we even keeping that in our own mindset? And how might we lead others towards temptation? How can we care about each other's holiness practically? Well, one is to consider really carefully the words that we use. How we talk about something may lead someone astray, cause someone to doubt, may give the wrong picture what we do with our Christian freedoms, things that God gives us the ability to choose between. Are we holding them so tightly that it's leading others into sin, causing them to violate their conscience or commands in God's word? 
a very materialistic world, a highly sexualized world. There's things that we could consume and we feel fine about that could lead others down the dangerous path. There's plenty more examples that we could talk about, and I think it'd be great for each of us to just evaluate in our own hearts. Am I caring about others' holiness, and what things may I need to put off in order to serve? Jesus says, if you want to be great, then humble yourself. Put others before you and care about their holiness. And part of that, then, is our third step of being aware of temptation, and that is amputating the source of your own temptations. Amputating the source of your own temptations. Verses 8 and 9 may be familiar. It's certainly interesting. Uh, in uh, the biblical counseling world, they would call this the principle of radical amputation. Right? Cut off and throw away our imperatives. This is an important deal. We should really, really take this seriously. But I, I think Jesus is speaking hyperbolically here, right? He's not saying legit, cut off your hand or foot or gouge out your eye. Well, why? Why do you think that's not legit? Well, think about this for a second. What actually causes us to sin? My hand made me do it! Something my four-year-old would say. My sister made me do it! My lack of sleep! My grumpiness! My mom! My dad! My weather! Blah, blah, blah! Luke 6.45 says, Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. James 4.1 says, What causes fights and quarrels among you, but the passions at war within you? So what causes temptation to sin? Pride in our own hearts. A lack of humility, and that's what we need to address first. That's what we need to deal with our own selves. And I think the context here is important because, sure, Jesus absolutely wants us to humble ourselves, to deal with our own temptations, to cut off the things that would lead us to sin. But the context here is talking about other little ones. Do we ever think about radically amputating things in our lives for the sake of others? Do we deal with the source of our sin, our pride, for the sake of others? Yes, we will avoid hell and fire as well, but the idea is that we should seek to serve our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ by dealing with our own pride. So what does this look like? If you're struggling with addiction to something, that means getting rid of every opportunity that you would have to pursue it. The money to buy the thing, the privacy where you would consume it, the people you would be around that would lead you to it. If there's a specific sin, you would talk to someone about it, confess it, bring your small group leader or a pastor in. You would avoid compromising situations. You would care about your weaker brother or sister in Christ. And you will never say, they caused me to sin. It's on us. Loved ones, the church has called us to be people who care about each other's souls who welcome one another, who receive one another, and who serve one another from a heart of humility. We guard one another, we protect one another, we, we keep dangerous things at bay, and we amputate when we need to. But the idea is not just to remove every single obstacle. There's going to be stumbling blocks. The, the idea is to have the humility to address it and to care about others through it. So humble yourself. Be alert to temptations for the sake of your own heart and others who are part of the kingdom. Hebrews three twelve through 14 says this. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Again, it's, it's your own heart. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. If we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold to our original confidence firm to the end. It's a corporate thing, humility in Christ. 
We'll move on now to the final section, Matthew 18, verses 10 through 14. Follow with me as I read. See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man who has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it truly, I say to you, he rejoices over it more than the other ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is the will of my so it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. The previous section talked about how to keep sheep from wandering. This section talks what do we do when sheep are wandering. And before we get into that, I want to make just a quick note on uh, the text here. You may notice that uh, your Bible does not include a verse 11 in most translations. Um, That is because the earliest manuscripts do not have it there. Your Bible may have a footnote about it. Your study Bible probably talks a little bit more in depth about it. Uh, But I think it's important whenever we see this, in order for it not to be a distraction, we talk about it really briefly. Ultimately, this shouldn't cause us to waver or be concerned about God's word, but to affirm the authenticity and the sufficiency and the authority of it. The Bible is the most scrutinized text in the entire world, and it has been affirmed to the minutia of every verse what was original, what is God's autograph, what was breathed out and spoken by him. We do not need to worry. There have been Christians and non-Christians who have affirmed this is what God intended to have recorded down. If you have any questions about that, want to talk more about the nitty-gritty, like, nerdy details, I would love to talk with you more, but i just bring it up so it doesn't distract us as you're looking at your text this morning. The main idea is what verse 10 starts with. See to it that you do not despise one of these little ones. See to it is the idea of be on guard, like stay alert. Again, an imperative. This is a big deal. And what were we to be alert of? not pridefully looking down on others. Could have been positional, like leaders looking down. Could be spiritual, like I've known Jesus for a long time. Uh, It could have been gender. It could have been class. It could have been race. All of those things that culture tends to put people in has influenced the church. And Jesus says, all of that is garbage. We do not look down on one another. Humility is God's plan for the kingdom. So we need to be on guard against that, on guard against despising and looking down on one another. In fact, the the way that we combat that is explained in the parable, that we recognize God doesn't want anyone to wander, but he rejoices at all who are found. The antidote to despising is celebrating all who are reconciled and saved. And so our third act of humility is be glad for all who believe. Be glad for all who believe. There's a couple of important arguments that Jesus lays down here. In the first, in verse 10, I want to work through quickly. Uh, it's the idea that we should be glad in light of the Father's provision of angels. You may think that's a little interesting. Uh, well, let's read Hebrews 1, verses 13 and 14. Hebrews 1, 13 and 14 says, And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. Uh, What this verse is ultimately talking about is that the job of angels is to be sent by God to serve all those who are children of God, all those who are children of the kingdom. God has all his guardian angels at disposal for all of his children at all time. Uh, This is 
Not uh, that you have a specific individual guardian angel like man-to-man. Think more zone defense, right? We, we see there's examples of this in the Bible. God sent angels to Daniel to guard him against the lions. He sent an angel to Peter when he shook the prison and freed him. Jesus says that all those who believe in me are covered by all the angels that are under my authority. And it's in light of that that we should be glad for them. We should recognize God's love and care and using all of his authority for the littlest of those in his kingdom. And we should love and care for them just the same. This also serves as an amazing reminder of the privileges that all believers share, that God has blessed all of us with some amazing things. And if we had another hour, we could talk about the importance of union with Christ and all of the blessings that are entrusted to us. But, but the big idea here is that we shouldn't pridefully despise others, but we should humbly rejoice in their status with God as little ones who have been saved. The second idea then in the parable in verses 12 and 13 is that we should be glad in light of the father's individual pursuit of his children. The individual pursuit of his children. This parable relates to Ezekiel 14 where Jesus says, or where Ezekiel talks about God as the the good shepherd, the perfect shepherd, and he wants all of his sheep and his flock. He doesn't want false shepherds taking them away. Ultimately, God is in charge of all of that. God will not lose any of his sheep, as John 10 says. He will save those who are meant to be saved. He will bring back those who have wandered away. Verse 12 asserts that there is no answer but the positive. Won't he leave? Absolutely he leave. And he will bring them back. And when they're brought back, I'm going to rejoice in them, more so than those who never wandered. If God, the Father of all creation, the authority over all creation, rejoices in those who are brought back to him, I think we should also rejoice in all who are brought back to him. We should love them as he does. We shouldn't worry about their worldly status, where they came from, what they're about. We should care about their eternal status with God. We should celebrate that. I came across a story this week from a really old pastor where he talked about um, a friend of his who wanted to marry a woman in his congregation, okay? Uh, The man went to the father of this woman who was also in his church and uh, asked for permission, and uh, the father ultimately said no. And the father, in talking to his daughter, the one who wanted to be married, uh, he's like, "Ah, he's great, he's godly. Obviously, I'm submitting to his leadership as my pastor, but I just don't know where he came from. I don't know about his status. I don't know what that means for you to be married to him. Well, and the daughter says, you're right. We don't know where he came from, but we know where he's going. And I want to go with him. Eternity in heaven with God. Man, when we meet a genuine believer, it doesn't matter their background or their status. It matters who they are before the Lord and where they are going to spend eternity. That's what's important. We should be glad about that. Now, we do need to be careful here because I understand that there are things that God's word speaks to that are important, that we should care about, that we should value. But we need to be very, very slow to participate in the cancel culture that is around us. There's a lot of things that we can disagree on before we need to use the words like heretic and false teacher. It's not that those things are unimportant. It's not that there's not a time and a place to use those words. But we need to celebrate and be glad in the main things. We need to humbly recognize one another as fellow little children, if that is indeed true. 
And if God would never want someone to walk away or he would never rejoice in that, why would we? Why would we say he got what you deserved? Why would we say God will judge them and I'm happy for that? If God celebrates all who are saved, all who are brought back, we should as well. Uh, Charles Spurgeon, in uh, a sermon a long time ago, uh, he used to walk to his church in the middle of London, and he saw this big building, and he's like, I have no idea what they are trying to do. I don't know what the architect was doing, if he was sleeping when he drew this, but how is this going to come together? And as he kept walking, he was like, well, I guess I will know when it's complete, when it's all put together, and see what it looks like. I could go ask him in his office, and maybe he'd explain to me, but even then, it's only if I actually see it completed. And as he thought on this, he said, man, maybe this is kind of like the kingdom of heaven. In our finite, imperfect minds, we don't know the full construction of what God is building. How ignorant of us to think, or arrogant of us to think, we can know what his plan is. But we'll know when it's done, and it'll be an amazing thing, and we'll be able to celebrate it. The the diversities and differences among his little children is all a part of building a beautiful kingdom where he will be glorified maximally for all eternity. There are brothers and sisters in Christ who are different than us, but who we should rejoice in nonetheless. We shouldn't look down on other believers, but should celebrate them, just like a spirit of Zephaniah 3.17, singing over them with gladness. Verse 14 emphasizes it's inconceivable that Jesus would want anyone to perish. God wishes that none would perish, but that all would come to him. Second Peter 3, verse 9, it says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise of some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any would perish, but that all would come to repentance. That's God's heart. That's God's goal. And we should humbly pray for that, seek that as well, that all would come to know him, and that those who do, we would celebrate and rejoice and be glad. We need to live humbly as children of the one true king. Now, if become and beware and be glad were not a good enough alliteration for you, uh, I want to share three words that I've kind of been meditating on this week with this text, and that is humiliate, amputate, and celebrate. Humiliate, amputate, and celebrate. Humiliate, not in a negative sense, like I'm made to look a fool, but I humiliate myself under God and his authority, totally depending upon him, counting others greater than me amputate, dealing with sin, radically taking away the pride and stumbling blocks in my life and the way that I might be a stumbling block to others. Celebrate all believers, not looking down upon them, rejoicing in all those who are saved and all those who return to the faith. Rejoice even when there is some differences. Celebrate them. God's children are supposed to humbly care for and value and protect and esteem one another. That's how God's humility is put on display amongst his little children. That's how he's called us to live. We are called to depend upon him and to show that humble dependence to others in childlike faith. We're going to close this morning uh, by responding in a song of just confessing that, Lord, that we, we want to humbly depend fully on you. We submit ourselves to you. We ask that you would grow us in humility and, and follow you, that we would all grow in our own childlike faith. So would you stand with us as we close and sing this morning?